Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope uh, your Thanksgiving went well. We went and got a tree yesterday. It's a little bit shortage of trees. The price went up quite a bit. It was a bit of a shocker. Um, to start with, uh, about a month ago, I went to a conference in San Antonio. I went to the Alamo. See what I did there? I went to the Alamo, and now I've remembered the Alamo. It's a great dad joke. Come on, I'm a dad. All right. So we're talking about hope today. Um, as you can tell, if it's not obvious, there's this big sign back there. I'm wondering if next week that's changing. Um, when I say the word hope, what comes to mind? Um, maybe hope. Maybe it's the name of a girl that you had an interest in at one time. Uh, maybe it's winning the lottery, meeting the right person, one day buying the car that you have longed to own, owning the perfect house, children, grandchildren, living a good long life, or maybe the Ravens winning the Super Bowl again, or the O's winning the World Series. So we're going to look at Isaiah 11 on this topic of hope. Let's, if you want to open your Bibles, if you're on your app on your phone, as I know I often do now, um, we'll go through that. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child Put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all peoples. The nations will rally around him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of uh, Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates rivers. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, and there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for this time that you have brought us here. Help us to hear from you, Lord, and your word today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So what is happening at this time? Um, it's not 100% certain exactly when this passage was written. 
Uh, it is believed that since its placement in Isaiah, it was at the time of Ahaz, um, and he was a king of Judah. Um, and it was a very difficult time for Judah. Well, why? When Ahaz was a terrible king, it says here that in 2 Chronicles 28.1, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Also, as I get from my Bible dictionary, kind of a list of things that went on, so you can kind of get a picture. One is, is that uh, the king of Damascus and the king of Israel, you know, were conspiring against Assyria, and they wanted Judah to go along, and they were pressuring Judah to join them, and they didn't want to. Then they had issues with conspiracy. These two kings eventually ended up attacking uh, Judah, um, and they had a, a bunch of other things that went on. The roughly this time is right around the 730s BC. Um, Judah was attacked in a, something called the Syro-Ephraimite War. Uh, they had attacked Judah to force them to join in uh, rebellion against Assyria. Judah appealed to Assyria for help. This led Judah to be under the yoke of Assyria moving forward. God did not want Ahaz to do this. He wanted him to trust God. So that's kind of the picture or the backdrop of what some believe this passage came from. And actually, this passage isn't alone in, in Isaiah. First, this first section of Isaiah, there's actually four sections that give reference to the coming Messiah. Each one gives a little picture of the Messiah that you kind of take collectively as a whole. You have Isaiah 2, where he talks about establishing the house of God in Jerusalem. And the nations will not rise up against nation. Chapter 4, 2 through 6, which talks about salvation. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, which most people know around Christmas time because they've heard Handel's Messiah before. And so they've heard what that passage talks about, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And then this passage here, which we're looking at today, where the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So looking at these three sections, or looking at this passage of 11, you can break it up into kind of three separate sections. One is like, it talks about this, what we described as a Davidic ruler. Next, this is idyllic kingdom. And then the third part is kind of God gathering the kingdoms of the world. So looking at that first part, you have this uh, Davidic ruler. And I'm not going to read that again. I'll let you follow along in, in your notes there or in your own Bible. But when it talks about a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse... Now, the name Jesse, a lot of people would believe, well, that's David's father, because David's father was Jesse. Um, and so uh, it's believed that that's the reference there. And so it describes, like, it, because particularly since chapter 9, talks about the Messiah, uh, you know, uh, uh, reigning on David's throne. The implication is that the Messiah will rise up from humble beginnings, because that's the, what God likes to do. And the shoot is a symbol of hope kind of shooting up, that contrast what Ahaz was like. Um, and then next you have what they talk about God's blessing, this idea that the Spirit will sit or rest upon or be upon this Messiah. Prior to the time of Christ, the Spirit oftentimes was described as resting on people for a specific purpose, for a specific time. It wasn't like it is in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit comes to everyone that believes and you, and you see this individual, it's described as the spirit of wisdom um, and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. As a result, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
Um, this describes someone who has been given the gifts to make like wise decisions, you know, provide good counsel. The wisdom of Solomon comes to mind. Um, as Isaiah 9.6 describes the Messiah as a wonderful counselor. The person will also have the knowledge and fear of the Lord, which implies that they have a unique relationship with God, which is key for this. Assuming that this was the time of Ahaz, Isaiah talking about this would be like, yeah, that's the person we need. We need to get rid of Ahaz. We need that person here. Now, some of you may kind of think, well, wait a minute. You know, if the Messiah was Jesus, and we know that, and we know that he was God, uh, why do we need to know all this, right? After all, you know, if he's God, he has all this, you know. But that is cheating. That's looking ahead. We need to kind of stay back and look at it initially, at least from what they would have seen. Because they didn't have the hindsight that we have. Um, and as we see through each of this passage in Isaiah and throughout the Bible, God is always content in giving people kind of small pictures of what he is doing. He doesn't always lay it out. And we see that because at the time of Jesus, he finally did lay it out all for them. The key question, though, is does Judah see or understand what God is trying to show them or tell them? Um, this passage also says that this person will bring you know, godly justice. It was the job of a king to bring justice and to help those in need. Here the person will do so with the knowledge and fear of the Lord, having that intimate relationship, their, their justice will be right. The uh, second you have um, is what we call the idyllic kingdom. Um, and this one I always kind of like, because it, it, it kind of gives you this picture of, of this, this perfect world. In fact, some people would kind of describe this as a return to Eden. Some people have gotten caught up in the biology of it, like, well, how can this, you know, how can certain animals chew straw? Um, however, I think the point is, is to say is the my, M- Messiah will bring about a time where there is no more evil, no more conflict, and no more death. Um, and I know some people would see this as heaven, but again, that's kind of looking ahead, and I think it's okay to do that after the fact. Um, now, because this passage does not explain how this change will occur. Thinking through what people may have thought at that time, they would have seen this, well, you know, you have this person where God is coming down and on this person, and they're going to bring about it on this world at this time. They're, you know, they're this unique world where there is no uh, um, more conflict. If they piece together the passages that are in Isaiah, they will understand this new kingdom as, I don't know if I have it, yeah, as it will be a place where all the people come together, which you get from chapter 2 to, People will be holy, which comes from chapter 4, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, which we get from this chapter. Moving to the third section is, it's gathering the nations of of God. I'm not going to go through this entire section, but just to touch on a couple of things. Um, One is, is that this Messiah, this person, is bringing all the nations to him. It says in... um, It says there that he will raise a banner for all nations. He will gather all the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah. But he will also talk about there will no longer be animosity between Judah and Israel because that had existed a long time. Um, In fact, um, what... uh, 
what Ahaz did in inviting the Assyrians ultimately led to Israel's downfall because they were eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, what would all this mean? So this new Messiah was going to bring this, uh, would, uh, would bring healing in this new world order. So what would that mean for the time of Ju- for people of Judah? Um, now, they may look forward to a time when God would, uh, would uh, send this ruler that would push out the Assyrians. And, you know, they may have thought that had arrived with Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, because he was considered a good king. In fact, what does it say about him? It says, 2 Chronicles 29.2, He did what was right in the eyes of, his, of the Lord, just as his father David had done it. And when he was king, he worked hard to kind of get rid of the idols. He worked hard to bring people back to the Lord. He did rebel against Assyria, which brought, you know, the invasion of of Judah. uh, And a lot of cities fell except for Jerusalem. And it was a miracle of God because he did turn to the Lord. It's actually a miraculous thing that happened. Um, And I have it here. It says, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Israel from the land, from the hand of, and I'm not going to be able to read his name, but he was the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all the others. He took care of them on every side. This was always what God wanted. All right, So he saved them because he turned to them. In fact, Assyria was never really uh, an issue for Judah as much. And I'm sure there was kind of minor things. And, and, and Judah survived quite a time longer. It, wasn't, it was really actually the next large nation that came along that, that, that eventually conquered Judah, and that was the Babylonians. The problem, though, with Judah, however, is that they did not seem to get the point of Isaiah's message here or any of his messages. The key message of Isaiah, really, throughout, you know, uh, throughout Isaiah, and I should mention, too, is that part of the reason this message came along is because I decided to really dive in deep to Isaiah. Partly convicting because um, I'm one of those people, I like things a little more orderly. So, you know, things like the New Testament are nice because, you know, I can give you these nice little compact things and it fits well. Prophecy gets a little more obscure. You have to dig and read here and read there, and it always is like, couldn't it be a little more simpler? Uh, and so I was really convicted on that, because if, if I consider myself a, you know, a, a, a studier of the Bible, I have to take the whole counsel of God. So I started di- digging in deep on Isaiah and reading, not just, just reading it, but kind of trying to read the history. And I will tell you one thing, is for stuff like this, it is kind of important to know what was going on, because it makes more sense for what they were saying. Um, but something that I really kind of jumps out at me and something that I've I, I read in kind of the commentaries, they say, is kind of an overriding um, attitude uh, of, um, of Isaiah is, um, is this idea that God is in control of it all. Is this, that, this, this is what he wants to impress upon him. Look, I am in control of everything. And, uh, and I, God, I, God, not me, but God is saying, I am the one that you need to trust. In fact, he even says it. In Isaiah 2.22, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. On what account is he? In fact, as I've read through this, um, as I've read through this, it says that, you know, especially with the first part of Isaiah, there's all these oracles about, 
um, all these nations. And you're kind of reading, why does he keep talking about what's going to happen to these nations? And so then you read kind of the history a little bit. There was always these kind of other nations that may have been possible allies for Judah, you know, against Assyria. And Isaiah keeps going. It, the idea is that Isaiah, Isaiah comes along and says, you don't need to trust them. Let me tell you what's going to happen to them. This is why you don't need to trust them. Now, sometimes the time period wasn't always immediate, or he didn't give a time period. But the goal behind that was to tell them, look, you need to not trust in them. You need to trust in me. Stop trusting in them. Uh, and so... Um, then, uh, and you know, the thing is, too, is to remember at what, what, um, what was happening at the time is they were dealing with the Syrians who were very brutal. If you study history, that they, they, treat, they were really scary. Um, I had one professor would always call them the Nazis of antiquity. In fact, the, the backlash against the Assyrians when they were finally defeated was so harsh because of their brutality, they were almost completely wiped out of existence. Uh, <clears throat> so... So what would happen is, is that people would come and, and suit and try to, like, you know, have conversations with, with Judah and, and probably Hezekiah and Ahaz. And it was, uh, as one commentator said, it was almost like, you know, Isaiah would walk into those conversations. because you know, see those Philistines? You know, you don't want to do with, you don't want to be with them because this is what's going to happen to them. And so throughout this, throughout God's conversation, these have these passages of Isaiah that say, this is where I am going. And oh, by the way, you don't want to trust in those guys because this is what is going to happen to them is the overriding attitude here is God is in control of it all. He allowed these nations to grow strong and he will take it away in the future. God is turning to them and saying, I'm the one that is trustworthy. I'm the one that you need to trust. Now, of course, what does this mean for us? When I was kind of... Um, uh, um, hold on one second. Ah, I have that twice. All right. So what does this mean for us? Um, as I was kind of working through this, and I, I was really trying to wrestle with this, because on the one hand, I was kind of thinking through, well, these people had these immediate needs, and they were looking for hope. They were dealing with this powerful nation, and they wanted. And then you had God kind of saying, well, no, but I, I, wanna, I want you to focus on the big, big picture, um, you see God saying, you know, look at the, let me actually get back to this. It says, on the one hand, I see people who needed help, and Isaiah was telling them to trust God. But he was talking about uh, something that, as we learn in hindsight, was going to happen long after, or maybe even hasn't happened yet. Um, now, uh, had Judah trusted in God, maybe things would have been different, but spoiler alert, they eventually didn't, and they were eventually defeated. Uh, they never really got around that. But as I was kind of rustling through this attitude, like, well, Lord, what about the immediate needs? And you're talking about the bigger needs. And there was two questions that came to mind as I was kind of thinking this through that kind of helped me think this, helped me kind of process this. And it was really this. When we talk about hope, one, what are we hoping in? And the second is, what are we hoping for? So dealing with the first one, the first one kind of seems kind of obvious, right? We hope in Christ. John, you know, 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, however, what does it mean to hope in Christ? Um, you know, you have some that will have the kind of more extreme trust at all costs, as I would say. 
kind of consider this example. You know, Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Let's say I'm sitting on my couch, and I get a little hungry, and I go, and I decide to take this verse much farther than I think we're ever supposed to take this verse, and I say, well, God said he'd supply my needs. I can just sit here, and God will bring the food to me. And people go, well, that's ridiculous. you you got to get up off the couch and go get yourself something to eat, right? Um, I have even talked about this in you know, Genesis 2.15 where the Lord, you know, we're, we're with Adam. This was before the fall. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. That there's this part where God is not going to spoon feed us. That God wants us to be part of, of what he's got going on. But I have seen this extreme in the church. I remember I had a friend of mine that said, you know, I want to get married. You know, and if God wants me to marry, he'll bring, he'll bring that, that, that woman to my church. And some people would say, well, I don't, I don't know if that's quite right. By the way, he never got married. Um, recently, I, I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I got to attend my, my Uncle Sam passed away. Yes, I have an Uncle Sam, and Uncle Sam wants you. Um, uh, he was in his 80s. He had passed away. He was my, my father's brother. And um, as all funerals go, you always hear stories, right? Stories that you may not have heard before. Uh, and I found out that when he was five or six years old, he had fell, fallen out of a car, uh, and he was unconscious for a week. And uh, so what happened was, is that my uh, grandfather did not believe you needed a doctor, you just needed to pray. So, which is what they did. So, um, oh, that's interesting. I joke about that. I have a pastor, he said, I hope that's Jesus. Um, sorry, Gary, I just mean it. <laughs> So my grandfather didn't think you needed a doctor. You just needed to pray. Now, to give a little background on my grandfather, um, he, uh, he was an interesting guy. He uh, used to, my dad told me a story about it. He used to play, he used to play the fiddle, not the violin, mind you. It was the fiddle. And they would do it good times. And he said he saw the devil dancing on his fingers one time, and he threw it down and stomped on it and never played again. And then when he became a Christian, that was when he wasn't even a Christian. When he became a Christian... He became a preacher, and they would build churches. He would take my uncle and my dad around, and they would literally build churches from the ground up, many in, in Pennsylvania and the New York area. Um, but he came out of the holiness movement, which really was kind of really strict about a lot of things. You know, you didn't do things on Sunday. You didn't play cards. You didn't watch television. They had, you know, it, was, it was a lot of rules-based things. Uh, but the irony is my, my uncle Sam became a doctor. Um, I just find it kind of fascinating, you know, and I always said, did he run it? And the story of him is, is that when he was a teenager, he was riding in a car with his buddies and his friend was driving. His friend got distracted and they slammed into the back end of a truck. And the story is he said he looked to his left and that friend was dead and the other friend went through the window. And my uncle ended up in the hospital for over 30 days. And from that experience, decided he wanted to be a doctor, which he worked hard to do. Never graduated from college, but took enough classes to get to medical school. Um, now, uh, sorry, to talk, probably going on, this has nothing to do with it other than I want to gush on my uncle, because he was a believer, he loved Jesus, and he lived his life that way, and so I always felt I needed to give him props. In fact, uh, after he passed away, the local hospital he worked at for a number of years decided to name a wing after him. Little side note, though, the truck they hit was a Mayflower truck, and I always thought that was interesting, knowing how some people in Baltimore are about Mayflower. So see, something good can come from a Mayflower truck. <laughs> Some of those people, though, on the, when it comes to trusting God, have a fear of taking credit for anything. I was thinking back on, I don't know, for football fans, maybe you know, um, remember a guy, a guy named Randall Cunningham? He was a quarterback, played for Philly. Played, then he dropped out, then he met Jesus, came back and played for the Vikings. 
And, uh, you know, he was throwing touchdown passes, Randy Moss, and they would go talk to him. And he go, you know, uh, Randall, when you were through that pass and in the fourth quarter, what, you know, what was going on? And then his response was always the same. He would give glory to God. I just want to praise God for all the gifts he's given me. Now, the first time I saw, heard this, I was like, yo, preach it, brother. This is awesome. After about the fourth or fifth time of the same response, the football fan in me jumped up and said, you know, can you just answer the question? I really do want to know what you were thinking when you threw that touchdown pass. But it seemed like, I always felt like, is he afraid to actually admit that God has given him some abilities? And I think people can struggle with this. I have in my own business is that I work really hard at what I do, and I deal with a lot of Christians. And sometimes we have certain cases that things are tricky, and we have to work real hard. And it works out, and I get excited. And they're like, oh, praise Jesus, it was all the Lord. And then a part of goes, well, um... I had a little, part, a little bit to do with that now. And then I feel guilty, like, oh, I shouldn't take credit for anything. And so I've, kind of, I've always wrestled with that a little bit. And I feel like in some respect, what we really need to do is, is that, and I think this is kind of in line, at least with Isaiah, is this idea that you know, God has given you abilities. You know, is it wrong for me to say, I picked up this computer? Or should I say, no, the Lord picked it up. Now, I know that God can take that away in an instant, that ability to even do that. You've seen the Mercy Me has a song out there about a guy um, who went into septic shock and over a matter of a couple of weeks lost all of his limbs. I know that God can take things away in an instant. But I also don't have a problem with talking about, I think, abilities God has given me or things I have done. And I think that where it comes down to is that at the end, we always must acknowledge that nothing happens unless God allows it to happen. No matter all the planning you've ever done, and you can know tons of stuff and have it in detail, it doesn't happen unless God allows it to happen. Because you know anything can go wrong at instance. I mean, take this floor. You know, I'm saying, I'm trusting that this thing will, will, will stand up. I'm trusting the fact that either Frank put it together or he supervised it properly. You know, I always think of that story my cousin used to always say, said to me once, we were at like an amusement park and he's on one of those rides that go this. He goes, I can't help but thinking that the person that put, to this, put this together was getting paid minimum wage and he goes, hey, I forgot the wrench. And somebody goes, hey, just hand tighten it, right? <laughs> so I, I trust that it was put together. But I also know that, hey, somebody could have messed up, put in the wrong bolt and I could fall through. And I always have to be aware of that. So... Well, I will acknowledge what I have done, but I'm always giving glory to God that, hey, it worked out. That my planning, even my most intricate plans worked out. I'm still praising the Lord that he put that together. Having said that, do you trust Christ completely? This kind of comes out when things get really tough. Um, think back to this passage of Isaiah. Judah is like facing these two warring factions coming at them. They're not sure that they can survive. So they get scared and look to Assyria. That can be us if we're not careful. We can look to other things to trust other than the Lord. I, I was thinking back at my time in law school, and I had a friend. One thing about law school was I studied all of the time, my, at least my first year. I mean, I would go, I would study throughout the day. I would take a couple hours for dinner, and if I took more than two hours, I would freak out. And then I had one night on, on a Friday night, maybe I would relax, and I went to church on Sunday and maybe played softball, and that's it. Other than that, I was studying. And I had a friend of mine who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he held true to that, you know, that, that, you know, that denomination in that he did not study from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And I would look at him and go, you are crazy. That is loads of time where you could be, you know, in your books. 
And then at some point, the Lord convicted me one day, kind of towards the end of my first year, and said, you know, can you trust me enough to give me one day a week? And I was really challenged. That. And it wasn't an audible. I would believe it was the Holy Spirit laying that on my heart. And from my beginning of my sixth year on, which is really carried to this point, is I've always kind of given the Lord kind of this sundown Saturday to sundown Sunday, where I just say, I get, you know, in a lot of ways, for somebody who, like me, who's an overachiever, a little bit it's like giving me permission to not do anything, which is kind of a big deal. Maybe for some of you, that's not, that's actually a big deal for me. You do not have to do anything. You can just relax. But it was a way of trusting God. Now, I will tell you, that went okay for really well until finals, that very first finals. I was sitting there on a Sunday, freaking out because I, I promised I wouldn't study, but like, oh, what I'll do is I'll take a nap and it'll go quicker. Well, that didn't work because I was already freaking out anyway, so I wasn't relaxed. But the Lord pulled me through. But the thing is, is that, and this is the other thing, what if I didn't make it? You know, would that have been wrong? No, because that would have still been the Lord's will. And I honored, I honored what I thought he wanted me to do, even if it didn't work out. And that still would have been okay. So how do you respond to that issue of, you know, am I trusting God? Some of it is based on this second question. What are you hoping for? Um... Oh, wait, I want to talk, I'm not there yet. So our response to our dependence on God will depend on how we answer the question, what are you hoping for? As I read through Isaiah, I see people that are only focused on the here and now. Um, and God is desperately trying to get them to focus on the bigger picture. Where am I going with all of this? He's telling them that he is the, the one to be trusted because he has it all in control. They are looking at the more immediate, and he is explaining them the bigger picture. They see the various events that may seem random, um, and he is pointing out that it is all part of a bigger plan. That's the amazing thing about dealing with God is life can look really random, and it could go, well, 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 this, this doesn't make sense. Well, I know, but God is still going forward. His plans are still moving forward. He controls when nations rise and when they fall. Of course, there's a question why he would allow such a brutal nation as Assyria in that's a question you can ask him when you get to heaven. And sometimes he does tell us why. In Isaiah 8, he says they were his instrument. Um, what, what we see God saying here is that he has had plans in motion to redeem the world since the beginning, since the fall in the garden. And we see it in Genesis. So the Lord, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all, all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike, and you will strike his heel. And that is supposed a reference to Jesus Christ stomping on the head of the devil. Um, this actually, what is going on, is best described in a commentary I, I, I use called the New American Commentary. Uh, and and I, it's a little bit long, but I actually thought the way he articulated what was going on was the best, better than I could. It says, the distinction between what will happen in God's future kingdom and what was happening during the time of Isaiah forced the interpreter to assess carefully the hope presented in these chapters. Some portion addressed concerns of an audience that needed to know how to present how its present situation could be transformed and a new kingdom established. These prophecies of hope show how the old world will pass away and a new one will, will be established. The words were intended to give, um, to give the audience confidence in God's eternal plan for his people and this world. Other parts of this message of hope address life in the future kingdom that God will establish, promising that one day the ideal will become reality. 
Both aspects of the nation's hope contribute to their faith in God in a time of deep distress that offered no peace. These promises can motivate any believer in periods of depression or times of oppression under the forces of ungodliness. Present problems must be evaluated in light of God's eternal promises. God will be victorious. The Messiah will reign on over all the earth. Nothing will stop from the establishing his kingdom. I think that we can uh, get our eyes off the bigger picture. We can be focused too much on our own personal issues. Not that they are not important um, to God. However, God's overall plan is what is most important. What did Jesus say at the end when he was praying to God? I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Ultimately, God is about you know, bringing glory to him. And ultimately, that is our role in life, is to bring glory to God. Our personal struggles are important to God. However, the most important is that God's plan goes forward. When I think about this hope, I actually think about the section about the idyllic kingdom. Jesus said, And if I go... And prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you may also, uh, you also may be where I am. When I think about the hope that Jesus brings, I think about this future kingdom, and I hope in that. What is powerful about this is that the creator has said to the created, us, I want to give you this kingdom. And this is actually a secondary thing that doesn't really come out, but I threw it in anyways. I want you to take part in this plan as it plays out in history. He wants us to be part of that. We always don't know what that is, but he wants us to be part of it. What a privilege we have to be asked to be part of this. What a hope we have. In conclusion, I wanted to leave you with um, one last uh, passage. Um, um, is that... Um, okay. One last passage, and that is this, is that it's in Isaiah 12... I'm not completely certain what the basis for this is, but it's, it's, a, it's a great, actually, it's called a, a, a song of praise or a, a prayer of praise. And I, I thought it was fitting, and I'd like to leave this with you as the, as the, uh, um, as the, uh, the band goes up to the stage. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my strong. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy. People of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you.